lest we forget that our longing for and our work for human rights and justice is something we do alone. We read the principles of the Unitarian Universalists. And now we will read an excerpt from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights proclaimed by the United Nations General Assembly on December 10th, 1948. Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. Whereas disregard and contempt for human rights have resulted in barbarous acts which have outraged the conscience of humanity as a whole and the advent of a world in which human beings shall enjoy freedom of speech and belief and freedom from fear and want has been proclaimed as the highest aspiration of the common people. Whereas it is essential if humanity is not to be compelled to have recourse as a last resort to rebellion against tyranny and oppression, that human rights should be protected by the rule of law. Whereas it is essential to promote the development of friendly relations between nations. Whereas the peoples of the United Nations have in this charter reaffirmed their faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and worth of the human person, and in the equal rights of all human beings, and have determined to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. Whereas member states have pledged themselves to achieve in cooperation with the United Nations, the promotion of universal respect for and the observance of human rights and fundamental freedoms. Whereas a common understanding of these rights and freedoms is of the greatest importance for the full realization of this pledge. Now, therefore, the General Assembly proclaims the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a common standard of achievement for all peoples and all nations, to the end that every individual and every organ of society, keeping this declaration constantly in mind, shall strive by teaching and education to promote respect for these rights and freedoms and by progressive measures, national and international, to secure their universal and effective recognition and observance, both among the people of member states themselves and among the peoples of territories under their jurisdiction. Article 1. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of common humanity. Article 2. Everyone is entitled to all the rights and freedoms 
set forth in this declaration. Without distinction of any kind, such as race, color, sex, language, religion, political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth, or other status. Furthermore, no distinction shall be made on the basis of the political, jurisdictional, or international status of the country or territory to which a person belongs, whether it be independent, trust, non-self-governing, or under any other limitation of sovereignty. Article 3. Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. I am white. My skin is white. I am white. I didn't know where to begin this reflection. I was sitting with many books around me. I'd pick them up and I'd read some. I laid on the floor with the pen in the hand and the words that came to me and wanted to be written down before anything else would come was, I am white. They are words I cannot forget or take lightly, just as I cannot forget the words that we just read in the Declaration of Human Rights. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And everyone has the right to life, liberty, and the security of person. So my first real conscience, consciousness of an introduction to racism in our country came when I was a novice in my Franciscan community, and I spent three months in 1985 on a mission experience with our sisters who were living in Lexington, Mississippi. Part of my work during that time was taking a census for a lawsuit they were a part of with other black leaders in the community that was challenging the newly drawn boundaries of the city property by the white mayor. In one direction, the city limits extended out five miles to include the white, large housing developments. In another direction, the city boundary ended a quarter of a mile out where the black people lived. It meant, and I saw it carried out, that if there was a fire in the black community, being outside of the city limits, the fire trucks did not need to respond. But if someone's house caught on fire five miles out in the white community, the trucks would roar to put it out. I saw and I learned a lot in those three months, getting a little glimpse at the power inherent in the color of my white skin. For the next 12 years, my life and learning were amidst Hispanic people both in inner-city Chicago and in Nicaragua. Though their history is different than the African-American community, the Hispanic community knows, too, the cruelty of systemic racism and oppression. 
and I came to recognize the unquestioned power and authority they gave me as a white person. Not only a white person, but a religious white person. I was part of an institution that they were well-conditioned to be submissive to, to give over their own authority to. After all, were we not considered closer to God? I look back on those initial experiences and recognize that a few scales fell from my eyes to see racism in action. But I know I did not really comprehend my place in it. I considered myself a good person. After all, wasn't I there in Mississippi on a mission experience as part of my path to give my life to the poor and oppressed? Didn't I choose to work in Chicago and Nicaragua to live among the poor, to help them, to bear witness, to empower, to be in solidarity, to alleviate suffering like Jesus and Francis did? I look at all those words right now and they just don't cut it. As most of you know, I have now lived in the Tenderloin for more than 20 years. The Tenderloin where there is a concentration of people living with the consequences of poverty and homelessness. Where there are thousands of men, women, and children experiencing poverty and homelessness rooted in racism. A couple of weeks ago when I was ill, Alex Starr read my reflection here at the service. I shared in the reflection of a morning in Nicaragua when I awoke and looked out into the barrio where I was living, and I said to myself, I don't ever want to wake up where this reality this reality of poverty and injustice is not before me. That is true, but it is not just a nice altruistic desire. It requires an everyday yes from me if I am ever going to really get it. If I am ever going to really understand what keeps racism in place, and how I am a part of perpetuating it in my very well-intentioned actions and ways of speaking and working every day. If I am really going to participate in addressing the poverty and injustice so visible in the Tenderloin and so many other parts of this country, I need to wake up and be engaged in places where I not only see, but I hear. I hear Ramu and Cheryl and George and Jackie and Ron and Stephanie, Roy and Selena and thousands of others tell me what it is to be black in this city, in this country. I need to be challenged when I unconsciously protect and defend the nice white folks, whether they be doctors or ministers or nonprofit leaders, including myself, who are silencing or dismissing the experiences of people whose lives are damaged every day and for centuries.
As faithful fools, we seek to be more than another kind and innocent and charitable nonprofit organization who wants to help poor people. Sitting near me in my pile of books when I was writing this was also an article from the 2001 UU World magazine. It was a magazine that was writing about community ministry and also on the work of As Faithful Fools. It was featuring the efforts of Kay Jorgensen as UU minister and co-founder of Faithful Fools. In the article, Reverend Dr. Paul Razor, a UU theologian, speaks of how our work reminded him of the Unitarian urban social ministries that go back to Joseph Tuckerman's work in the streets of Boston in the early 19th century. Buddy notes when speaking about Kay as a UU minister in this work, he said, there's an important difference. Kay's ministry is important theologically because it reveals a tension in our UU history. Religious liberals have always been devoted to direct social action, yet they often identify themselves with the dominant middle-class culture, the very establishment they seek to change. Is that not the tension for many of us as predominantly white-led religious institutions and nonprofits, many families and individuals? There is no getting around it that we have work to do, and the work is now if we truly believe and are committed to constructing that world where all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights, and where everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. As of tomorrow, it will be 70 days since George Floyd was murdered. I think about his death pretty much every day. And I think about the black people who live in the Tenderloin and the poverty that dominates their lives. I know that poverty and racism is killing them just as surely as that white police officer killed George Floyd, maybe more slowly but just as certainly. When Carmen and I agreed to join you today, I knew that I wanted to, that I needed to talk about racism. But it hasn't been easy to figure out what to say, mostly because I've been taught not to talk about racism. So when I started, I had to struggle with not coming up with answers or sounding like an expert because I am neither, and I don't have answers. All I have is my lived experience as a white person born and raised in segregated communities with advantages that never had to be named. I am so very aware that it is easy for white people, that, very, that it is not easy for white people to talk about racism, as you can see right there. 
It's not easy because I live in a culture that teaches white people that to even notice race is to be racist, or that if I even start to talk about race, I will surely say something wrong or hurtful, terribly stupid or ignorant, or even embarrassing. But I know that I have to start talking about racism, especially with other white people. If you are like me, both white and progressive, and you feel this kind of anxiety around racism, you probably also feel motivated to address it, to come to grips with it. Maybe like me, you are trying to understand what anti-racism needs to look like today, as opposed to 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, or 30 years ago. And maybe like me, you are finding yourself at a loss for words, or worse, unable to find a course of action. Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility, has been much on my mind. It feels like her work should be helpful in coming to grips with what is happening, especially with understanding what I should be doing right now, or at least why it is so incredibly hard. The message of white fragility is that white people, white progressive liberals, have certain nearly invisible and unconscious defenses to racism. And I will tell you that when I reflect on my life in the last number of years, I can tell you I have employed every last single one of those defenses. I have touted the anti-racist work of my parents, and I have virtue signaled how good I am by explaining how racism works in a room full of people of color, thinking that my realizations about racism are somehow new discoveries and not the everyday lived experience of the people sitting right next to me. I am so embarrassed by so many of those moments. I know that I have said those things because I am looking for validation, because I don't want to be one of those people who acts out of implicit, vi implicit bias or racism, and I really don't want to be seen as a bad person. But you know, this kind of highly emotional defensiveness, this reactiveness, creates a smokescreen, and it, it obscures what's really important in this moment. If I am, if we are, busy addressing our own anxiety and our hurt pride and seeking some kind of attention, then what we don't have to do is be accountable for the harm that is being done and continues to be done. And when I think about how I have expressed my whiteness as an anxiety and what that anxiety does to me, I begin to feel a real despair. How can we ever make meaningful systemic changes if individually I cannot even change myself, get past my own defenses. A year ago or so, I came across a book called Until We Reckon by a woman named Danielle Sered. It's about her work in, social, in restorative justice, and it focuses on her experience doing that work in Boston. She describes how restorative justice can work, how it is different from punitive justice, and how it can be a response to the systematic impacts of racism 
on communities of color. So Red's work description of why punishment fails to address the damage done by violence resonated deeply with me and these struggles with racism. Punishment doesn't necessarily address the needs of the person who has been harmed. It might fulfill a desire for revenge, but it doesn't heal. Sered says that over the years, listening to survivors of crime, especially violent crime, talk often about what they need, and some common themes emerge when she listens. Of course, she says, not all survivors want the same thing or have the same experiences, but over time, listening to these themes proves instructive and helpful. Two of these very important themes that she found are that first, that people want to be, have the hurt and pain that they've experienced be acknowledged, not dismissed and excused away. They also want to know that they and the people that they love will be safe in the future. Her chapter, In Praise of Accountability, describes how holding an offender accountable humanizes both the offender and the survivor by telling the truth about what has happened, as well as laying the groundwork for changing the offender's behavior in a meaningful way. When I read that, it rung so deeply true. The history of the U.S. is laced with threads of racial violence. Anti-black racial violence began in slavery and became the racial terrorism of lynching, lynching and mass incarceration. There is not a decade in our history without notable and horrific acts of racial violence and terror. As a whole, Americans are marked by these experiences some as the targets of this violence and others as the perpetrators and beneficiaries of it. This violence haunts all of us. After reading that chapter on accountability several times over, a question arose for me. What if we apply this process of accountability to our experiences of racism? How would the experience of whiteness in America change? I went back and studied what accountability requires. In Sered's framework, it requires first the acknowledgement of what has been done and the impact of those actions. Such an acknowledgement hits at the core of white fragility. Rather than defending ourselves, we have to acknowledge racism in all its form, not why we did it, but the harm that it does. This means that instead of focusing on our own experience of privilege, we focus on the violent, the violence, implicit and explicit, that has been done in the service of racial domination. What would that mean? Well, it would mean, for example, if we look at school segregation today, which is as intense, if not more so today, than it was in 1968 when I was a child, we would look not at the privileges and advantages of private schools, which is the primary mechanism by which school segregation is maintained these days. Instead, we would look at the high rates of detention suffered by African-American boys in school. And we would find the right page. We would look at that 
at that impact of the detention on African-American boys and how it sets them on a road to prison. School segregation inscribes on boys, young boys of color white fears of violence, white assumptions that black men are dangerous in ways that no one else is, and that they are destined for prison because we assume that blackness by itself is dangerous. In that point of our realization and discussion, we would begin to understand and acknowledge how all-encompassing the criminal system is for men of color, what impact it has on women of color, trans people of color. It begins when they are small and continues through school, through stop and frisk, through traffic stops, through prison, and yes, it brings them to the point of death always the point of possible death at the hands of police officers on the streets. Imagine if right now we were listening to the mother or grandmother of an eight-year-old black boy describe her fears for him, the conditions he is facing in a segregated school, and what he suffers every time he is disciplined. Imagine we are not talking about white people, but, a, but listening to the experiences of black families. For me, in that moment, this is what happens. Who I am and what I have done is no longer the center of attention. In that moment, what matters above all else is that little boy and the people who love him. If we can collectively have moments like that, turning our attention away from our own whiteness and onto those who are being injured, destroyed, impacted, day in and day out, then it becomes possible for us to take responsibility, to be accountable for our whiteness. In that moment, we would begin to see the individual lives that are shattered by racism. The this is the magnitude. This is why we have to remember that image of George Floyd dying. We saw a unique human being, a man with a life and a family, be killed so casually by a police officer. We came to see that this system, the center of which is the criminal system that defines all black men as dangerous, as human beings to be killed easily, and we want to say, this is not right, it is wrong. It should not have happened to George Floyd, a unique and precious human being. But there's a problem here, my friends. You are hearing all of this from me, a white person, not the mother or grandmother of an African-American eight-year-old. For this conversation to become accountability, we have to have it with those who are harmed and injured and dominated by racism. We have to find a way out of the structures of segregation that keep us talking only amongst ourselves. This is the hardest thing of all for us to do, to break down the barriers that keep us so insulated and give us the choice to turn away when it gets hard. I have been living in the Tenderloin for nine years 
And still, every day, I struggle to overcome the structures of separation so I can be in relationship with the people who are around me. Those are structures that keep black and white segregated. As an individual, I can only do so much. I can show up, I can advocate, I can step back, but I cannot stop the arrests. I cannot provide housing. I cannot undo the trauma of generational poverty and racism that keeps the people I care about from being free. And if those things don't change, we cannot, the people that I live amongst, we cannot have relationships based in human dignity and equality. I will always be the white person with power to be feared or manipulated or used and the black people around me will be subject to white domination. This is what will keep us separated. The most important part of accountability is doing what needs to be done to prevent the harm from being done again. For an individual who has committed an assault, the process of accountability may include anger management and other behavioral treatments. But for a society with more than 400 years of violent history to account for, it's going to take much more. As a white person, I have to step out of individual regret and turn to collective accountability. If we are to tell black and brown people they are safe from future violation, we have to move beyond our individual fragility and into communities of relationship so we can engage in meaningful accountability. And this, it has to be structurally done through institutional action. Maybe, for example, it could happen through churches. Can you imagine with me a predominantly white church seeking relationship with a predominantly black church for the purpose of accountability? That would require a certain amount of courage as well as a great deal of humility. It would require risking a rejection and embarrassment. What a forthright conversation that would have to be. We want to listen, we need to listen, we need to understand your experience. We know we have to be accountable and it's going to be hard work to do so and we need you. If we did that as white people, we would then know what to do to end racism. We would know it then because in that relationship, we would be committed to the well-being of those who have lived for generations with violent racism. Our lives would be bound up together. We would not cease to be white, not at all, but our whiteness would become less and less the center of attention. Around the fools, we often ask, how is my liberation and well-being bound up with yours? through a process of truth and reconciliation, which is just another name for accountability, we would have to become honest. And then we could find a path, one step at a time, out of the separation and segregation of white fragility and into accountability and community. And then we would be one step closer to that world in which all of us, every last one of us, would have a right to life and liberty and most especially security of person. <laughs>